Jesus is not going to take away their opportunity to exercise faith. In fact, he would be condemning them if he performed such an overwhelming sign that they had no choice but to believe. Hello, friends, and welcome. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate both of you. (laughs) All right, it's been a while, but at our church, we've been going through the teachings of Jesus. Uh, The senior pastor divided the teachings of Jesus into 64 different separate teachings, and we've been making our way through those teachings. I've been sharing the preaching duties with the senior pastor. If you're ever in Plano, Texas, and you want to come listen in person, you are welcome. We meet at Cottonwood Creek Church. Um, The preaching is usually in Chinese, but if someone comes who doesn't speak Chinese, uh, we preach in English, and then we have translation into Chinese. So if you're ever in Plano, Texas on a Sunday morning, please come find us. But this past week, we were looking at Matthew chapter 16. And before I uh, unpacked uh, the text of Matthew 16, we were talking in our church about how did Jesus make disciples? Was the program of Jesus in his disciple making to meet for an hour a week one-on-one with James and work their way through a discipleship curriculum, you know, maybe bust out some Old Testament scrolls and uh, some books of Moses and the scrolls, and Jesus would meet one-on-one with James and then meet one-on-one with, uh, you know, Peter and one-on-one with John. No, of course not, right? That wasn't the discipleship program of Jesus. The discipleship program of Jesus was calling these men to live and be with him all of the time. And he said, wherever the master is, there his servant will be also. So Jesus called these men to live with him, to be uh, imparted to, to receive his life in an impartation 24-7, to learn what the kingdom of God is and how we live in it and how it expands in the earth. So Jesus' end game was not to Uh, get someone to attend a meeting so that that person could then go out and get someone else to come in and attend a meeting. And then the meeting would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then we would have really large weekly meetings uh, with thousands of people coming together and uh, sitting in a meeting every week. Jesus's end game was to impart a life into his disciples so that the rule and reign of God could come into the earth. And that was the good news that Jesus preached in Mark chapter 1. He said, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the good news that Jesus was proclaiming was that the same government that runs heaven and makes heaven a wonderful place, everybody wants to go to heaven, the reason heaven is a wonderful place is because God's will is done there perfectly, and what we should pray for is for God's will to be done on the earth as it's done in heaven, and for his kingdom to come to the earth. And so Jesus was not teaching people how to get into heaven. Jesus was teaching people how to let the government of heaven get into their lives and rule and reign in their hearts in this present moment, that the kingdom of God, the rule of God was at hand. It was close in time and space. And the same king that made heaven so wonderful could rule our lives right now in this moment. And so Jesus would disciple his men 
by letting them live life with him. Dallas Willard says it this way in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, The impotence of systems is a main reason why Jesus did not send his students out to start governments or even churches as we know them today, which always convey some elements of a human system. They were instead to establish beachheads of his person, word, and power in the midst of a failing and futile humanity. They were to bring the presence of the kingdom and its king into every corner of human life simply by fully living in the kingdom with him. And so Jesus told his disciples that it was good that he was going to go away because if he went away, he would send the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus were still living on the earth today, it would be very difficult for any of us to get any time with him. You know, everybody would want to see him. Everybody would be seeking him out. If you wanted to go to Jesus, you'd probably have to fly to Israel and you'd probably have to wait. And uh, who knows how long of a line to get just a few minutes with Jesus, but Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away because I will send the Holy Spirit. And so through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit, each one of us can be discipled by the presence of Jesus in our lives through the Holy Spirit that Christ himself can teach us. And uh, John writes about this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 27. He says, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as he has taught you, abide in him him. And so this anointing, remember in the Old Testament when kings were anointed with oil to be in a position of leadership, it was a symbolic representation of the Spirit of God coming on somebody. So this anointing is the Spirit of God that Jesus gives us his Holy Spirit so that we might be able to commune with him personally and be taught by him personally. And John warns, Later in 1 John, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So it's not every uh, feeling or every uh, you know kind of internal voice that we have is the Holy Spirit. These things have to be tested. Paul said that no one speaking in the Spirit of God can ever say Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So the, the teaching that comes from God is the teaching that exalts the lordship of Jesus in our life. Anything that expands Jesus' lordship, his rulership, his reign over us that causes us to be more conformed to Jesus, that causes us to be more like Jesus, that is from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is leading us in this way, in this path. And that's what you know the first Christians called Christianity. They called it the way, that it was this way of doing life under the rulership of King Jesus. And the Holy Spirit leads us in this path where we're being transformed and made more and more into the likeness of Jesus over time, that we're becoming more like him, we're acting more like him, our character is more like him, we're easier to forgive, we're becoming more gentle, we're kinder, we love people more, we're more self-sacrificing, we're less selfish, we're less prideful, we're less greedy and lustful and covetous, and we're being transformed by the Spirit of God. And so Jesus' way of making disciples is not working through a discipleship curriculum. Jesus you know, didn't leave his guys with a book, he left his guys with the Holy Spirit. He, he gave the Holy Spirit to them that they might 
live in communion with him and walk out this life being transformed and being made into the likeness of Christ. In fact, that's what Paul says the whole purpose of the the church leadership is that uh, in Ephesians 4, he says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So these are why the body of Christ has these people to help everyone grow up and to become more and more like Jesus, that we might attain to this, this amazing phrase where he says, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, that we should grow up until we are like Jesus ourselves, that we've been so transformed, our character has been so transformed, and our lives are walking in uh, agreement with the work of the Spirit of God in our life so that we're reflecting the character of Christ, we're walking in a demonstration of His power, we're walking in holiness, we're walking in love. And that is the discipleship program of Jesus. It's life on life, it's 24-7. It's not working through a book or through a curriculum, but it's Jesus transforming our lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so this is why we, we study the words of Jesus and we come back to the Bible and we want to uh, read and feast on the words that have been preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures so that we might be nourished by them and we might be transformed by them. So even now, as we read the Word of God, may the Holy Spirit cause it to come alive in our own hearts and cause it to transform us that we might become more like Christ and live more fully in His kingdom, that His kingdom might expand in our lives and all around us. So praise the Lord. Let's go ahead and get into it. Matthew chapter 16, it starts like this. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees are joining forces. Now, this is already the second time in the Gospel of Matthew where people have come to ask Jesus for a sign. Uh, Back in Matthew chapter 12, the scribes and the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him for a sign. And he also references the sign of Jonah, and he actually explains what the sign of Jonah is, that uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days. But now that the Pharisees have teamed up with the Sadducees, which were actually kind of their, their enemies, their rivals at the time. So the Pharisees were a group of um, kind of ordinary people, everyday men who would have had ordinary jobs, but they were committed to a higher level of keeping God's law. They were committed to a, an additional kind of strictness in observance of the law. And they had many different traditions that they added to the 613 commandments of Moses. And so they were very interested in preserving the religion and the culture of Israel. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the opposite. They uh, were taking things away from the scripture. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe that man had an eternal soul. They didn't believe... um, 
that there were demons and angels, and so they didn't really believe in anything supernatural, and they were about compromising with the Romans to preserve their political power. So many of the um, priests and the administrators of the temple would have been Sadducees. These were kind of the sort of the upper crust people that uh, people in places of influence, people in power, they would have been the party of the Sadducees. And basically the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not get along with each other, but they found in in Jesus, uh, a common threat and a common enemy, and they both wanted to get rid of Christ, and so they uh, kind of joined forces to attack him together. And so Jesus is saying to them, look, you guys know how to interpret the weather. You can recognize what's going on, but you can't see what's going on right now. And so up to this point, you know, Jesus has already performed many, many miracles. He's fed the 4,000. He's open blind eyes. He's allowed lame men to walk. He's he's done all of these great signs and miracles, and yet they're saying, no, we want a sign from heaven. We want something extra. And so, you know, I think it's a fair question to ask, is it okay to ask God for a sign? And um, generally speaking, the answer is kind of, it depends. Because Jesus was doing signs, you know, when he turns water into wine in the Gospel of John, John said this was the first of his signs that he did to reveal his glory to his disciples. So Jesus was doing signs. He even told uh, the Pharisees, he said, if you don't believe me, at least believe in the works that I am doing. He's like, look, these these things testify. When uh, John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Christ or should we wait for someone else? He said, go back and report to John what you see. You know, the, the lame walk, the blind see, the poor have good news preached to them. These were the signs of the Messiah. So Jesus was not opposed to performing the signs that confirmed his identity. However, he was not about giving them to people who were demanding them from him. Jesus performed many signs from a place of compassion and a place of, of love for, for people, but not to prove himself. He didn't prove himself to the devil when Satan you know, wanted him to turn the stones into bread. He wouldn't prove himself to his critics. And part of this was that Jesus was not going to take away the opportunity for the Pharisees and the Sadducees to trust him. God, because he loves us, will never take away our opportunity to exercise faith. And the moment that we lose the opportunity to exercise faith, we cannot be saved. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So if we get such an overwhelming sign, if God gives us a sign in the heavens that is so overwhelming that we, we have no choice but to believe him, we can no longer exercise faith. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 6 says that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So Jesus is not going to take away their opportunity to exercise faith. In fact, he would be condemning them if he performed such an overwhelming sign that they had no choice but to believe. What God wants from us is for us to trust him, is for us to show faith. In fact, that's 
the only condition of our salvation is that we would believe when uh, the people came to him and said, what are the works that God requires of us? Jesus told them, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And so what God wants from us is for us to believe that Jesus Christ is his son. And, and as we believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, we will be uh, transformed. Our behavior naturally follows whatever we believe. In fact, our behavior is the clearest indicator of what we believe. In fact, it's the only indicator that matters because it's, it shows what's really true. And that's why our behavior can even be used to judge us when Christ talks about the separating of the sheep and the goats when he says, you know, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was um, sick and you didn't care for me. I was in prison. You didn't visit me. And he says, you know, whatever you did for the least of these, you'll do for me. It's such a uh, believers, people who are following Christ, people who are disciples of Christ, people who are born again, we have an instinctive desire to help the needy. And if you don't have that, and if you're not doing those things, you're not a believer. And it's such, our, our behavior is such an accurate indication of what we can believe. We're saved by faith. We're not saved through our good deeds. We're not saved by works of the law. We're not saved by being a good person. But those deeds will naturally follow our faith. And so that it's such an accurate indicator. In fact, the Lord can use our deeds to separate believers from non-believers. So if we think about people in Scripture who ask for a sign, sometimes God would um, you know, be merciful and be patient and, and give them a sign. You think of, of Gideon, uh, not a great example, not perhaps someone we want to model our life after. He was, uh, you know, uh, kind of pushing the Lord a little bit, but God was merciful to him and God gave him sign after sign after sign. If we think of Zechariah, for example, when uh, the father of John the Baptist, when the angel came and told him, you're going to have a son, your wife is going to get pregnant. He says, he asked the angel, how do I know what you're saying is true? And the angel's like, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And the angel caused him to be mute until you know, John the Baptist was was named. And that also speaks to the power of our words that the angel did not want Zechariah messing this thing up. So he causes him to be mute. Zechariah asked for a sign, perhaps not the sign he wanted. But now in, in the case of Mary, the mother of Jesus, she, she also has a question when the angel comes to her and says, you know, you're going to conceive. And she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel gives her a sign and says, go and see Elizabeth, your relative, she has conceived. And so um, it, it kind of depends who is asking for the sign. Uh, Zechariah was an old man who was a priest and who should have, you know, had faith. He knew the story of Abraham and Sarah. He should have been able to believe an angel's word to him, appearing to him like that. Uh, Mary, on the other hand, probably a teenage girl, not a, a priest, not having access to, to you know, study the, the Old Testament scriptures. And we see a slightly different response, you know, that, that God meets people where they are. And asking for a sign, I think, depends very much on the heart behind it. Jesus says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign because a lot of times people are just using the sign as an excuse that it's not really about, I, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had clearly already made up their mind. Jesus had already performed plenty of signs and he's saying, look, this is so obvious. It's like the weather 
in the sky. And you guys can predict the weather, but you can't um, accept what's going on around you, like what's happening in this moment. And so Jesus wasn't, first of all, wasn't going to condemn them by giving them a sign that would override their free will and override their opportunity to show faith. But second of all, he 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 wasn't a, a puppet to be commanded by them. He he wasn't someone who who needed their approval so badly that he was going to do whatever it took to to be accepted by um, this the these two groups of, of people. So let's go on. It says when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you failed to understand that I didn't speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so as I mentioned before, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees were committing two different errors. One group was adding to the word of God, and one group was taking away from the word of God. This is Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 and 6. Listen to this. It says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So the problem of the Pharisees was that they were adding to the word of God. They added on their own traditions. They added on. In fact, Jesus told them that through their traditions, they actually made the word of God of no effect. That their traditions could actually nullify the power of the word of God in their life. That's a that's an alarming thing that we can add tradition, that there can be this leaven of the Pharisees that can work its way into our minds, into our thoughts, and it can make the word of God of no effect. And then the other mistake is is equally dangerous is that we can take away from the word of God. We can say, well, this doesn't really matter and and you know, everything is all, you know, Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live now because Christ has covered all of our sin and we don't have to live holy and, and you know, it's all just do whatever you want because God loves us. That's also a mistake. Because we want to live holy so that we can experience the fullness of what Christ came to give us. Christ didn't just come to forgive our sins. He came to set us free from the power of sin. And so either one of these uh, extremes or either one of these 11 can take us captive, can, uh, you know, affect the way that we live. Paul writes about this in Colossians. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so he, he goes on later in Colossians chapter 2. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. 
These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so Jesus is warning us not to be taken captive. You know, in, um, in another, I think in the King James Version, he talks about um, they understood that he bade them not beware the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so sometimes we think, well, doctrine, that's just for theologians or pastors or denominations. I don't have any doctrine. I just, you know, I just believe the Bible. Or I don't have a philosophy. You know, Paul says, don't let yourself be taken captive by a philosophy. And we think, well, I don't, I'm not a philosopher. I, you know, I'm I'm not really into that. I just live my life. But everybody has doctrine and everybody has philosophy and everybody has a worldview. And so Christ is warning us that we can't let the the leaven of the Pharisees to add to God to, to come into legalism or the leaven of the Sadducees to uh, take away from the word of God and come into antinomianism or, or just, uh, you know, license and, and uh, kind of sloppy grace. Jesus is warning, don't let either of these things come in and spoil the pure faith that is following Christ, that is living the set-apart life, that is walking the way of the Holy Spirit and Him leading us. In his commentary on Matthew, David Turner writes, Preoccupation with temporal and material concerns continues to render disciples dull and forgetful of the values of the kingdom and of false teaching that endangers it. And so the, Jesus is trying to warn these guys, look, don't let these guys spoil your faith. Don't let their doctrine contaminate your life. And uh, they're like, oh, we forgot bread. And Jesus is like, oh my goodness, why, why are you worried about bread? Don't you remember? If we needed bread, I can take care of us. I'm talking about this doctrine that can contaminate your heart. And Paul wrote the same thing to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely persevere in them because if you do you will save both yourself and your hearers so jesus is offering the disciples a, a spiritual insight but they're not able to receive it because they're stuck thinking about carnal things oh what are we going to eat for lunch today when i was uh, talking to uh, our small church group on sunday i was saying you know how, how often does this happen even in a sunday morning meeting where the pastor is trying to impart some spiritual truth to us and we're kind of thinking ah what's for lunch today like where are we going for lunch what are we gonna what's gonna happen for lunch and uh so that that's just one example but i think there are so many times when the Lord would love to reveal something, some gem of spiritual truth to us, and we're so caught up in the carnal needs of the moment that we miss out on receiving the things that the Lord wants to get up, give us. But praise the Lord, in the end, the disciples, they understood, and uh, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So I would invite you to examine your own life and just see, is there anywhere where I've been taken captive by a man-made philosophy where the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees has spread and, and touched my theology. You know, this could happen in, in so many different areas. Um, one, one area, we were just meeting with someone on uh, Saturday evening, one area where this happens is in the area of physical healing, that um, because our experience around physical healing doesn't always match what we see in the life of Jesus. And so we develop a doctrine to explain our experience. 
rather than continuing to do our best to believe what we see in the Word of God, even when it doesn't match our experience. And so we can develop these doctrines of, oh, well, uh, maybe this sickness is, you know, from God, and um, God is using this sickness to uh, refine me and to grow me and to, uh, you know, work some greater purpose in my life. And that becomes a leaven of the Pharisees because we're adding to the Word of God. It becomes a leaven and, and a tradition that nullifies the Word of God. Now, it doesn't mean it's it's sinful or you're in sin if you're sick. And, and I, I've experienced plenty of sickness and people around me being sick. And I've also experienced miracles. And I've also experienced seeing people get healed. And it's there's a certain mystery to it. But I can say this for sure. What I see in the Bible is Jesus never says to anyone who comes to him for healing, no, you need to stay sick because God is using this uh, to work something good in your life. And if we believe that sickness was from God, then we would be in error to go seek medical treatment for sickness because we would just let the sickness work its way. If we, if we thought that sickness were part of God's sanctification plan in our life, then we should stop uh, washing our hands and brushing our teeth to let sickness have its full effect. But you know, we don't we don't really believe that. We don't believe that sickness is good. No, I don't know any Christians who believe that there's sickness in heaven. And God told us, Jesus told us that we should pray that God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus Himself manifested healing wherever people sought Him for it. And and He didn't turn people away when they came for physical healing. And so, even if our experience of it doesn't match Christ. I think that has more to do with our immaturity that, like I said in the beginning, the Spirit of God is working in us. God is uh, trying to mature us to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And I believe if we were had attained to it, then we would be able to heal the sick with the same consistency that Jesus did. But while we're still being mature, while we're still growing, while we're still struggling and, and uh, you know, fighting the good fight to become who God wants us to be, that doesn't mean that we should develop a doctrine to justify our immaturity and to say, well, I guess, I guess, you know, this is really, here's a theological explanation for this. That That's just one example of how the leaven of our traditions can nullify the word of God. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. God bless you. And I just pray that you're able to identify anywhere in your life where there's leaven Pharisees and Sadducees of adding to the Word of God or taking away from the Word of God, where we say, Oh, you know, no, this sin doesn't matter anymore. Oh, yeah, well, that was when the Bible was written. But now, you know, it doesn't mean what it, what it says. Uh, you know, that's the leaven of the Sadducees, and we should be on our guard against it. Okay, God bless you. Thanks for.